Yes, hello. This is my podcast. I call it a shared interest. My name is Tom. You can call me Tommy, whichever. It's actually the first ever episode of a shared interest podcast. I'm not exactly sure where it's going. I try not to think about that too much, but I do think a lot, and those thoughts lead to interests. And because the internet is kind of great, you can find other people who have the same interests. And if you connect and talk about things that you like, you might have a podcast. I don't know. We're going to find out because today we're going to share my feverish interest in fantasy sports. I know it's not for everyone, but it's one of my favorite hobbies. So... I'm fortunate enough to have a lot of other people who share the interest in fake sports. That's right. It's a big time industry and there's a lot of people making commerce from it and there's a lot of people who enjoy playing the game. But as much as I enjoy playing it, I don't actually know much about it. And since I want my podcast to be about getting smarter, let's dive into the history of fantasy sports and let's start by focusing on fantasy baseball. Seems appropriate, this baseball season and whatnot. So let's see if we can figure out a little bit about the history of fantasy baseball and then talk a bit about what it's like to play it in 2016. It's not like I can just pick up the phone and call somebody and say, hey, what's the history of fantasy baseball? But I do have Wikipedia. So I went to Wikipedia fantasy baseball. Let's see what it's all about. Fantasy baseball is a game in which people manage rosters of league baseball players. The participants compete against one another using those players' real-life statistics to score points. Materials in the Jack Kerouac archive at the New York Public Library show that Kerouac played his own form of fantasy baseball starting quite young and continued developing and playing this perhaps private version of fantasy baseball during most of his life. Wow, that's not where I expected the history of fantasy baseball to go. Uh, I don't know much about Jack Kerouac. I know that he's an American author. He wrote On the Road. Allegedly, this was a some seminal thing. It started a movement that was called the Beatniks. Not well read, so On the Road, Jack Kerouac. Anyway, at one point, they were hipsters. They went around America having great like micro-brews or craft beers or something. That's my understanding, at least. I've already admitted I've never read the book. I don't care to. Let's fast forward. I'm not sure why Jack Kerouac was involved in the history of fantasy baseball, but I already feel positive about where we're going with this. In 1961, another early form of fantasy baseball was coded for an IBM computer by John Burgesson. It allowed two teams to play one another using random number generation and player statistics to determine a game's outcome, including a play-by-play description. In 1961, I'm not exactly sure what the Earth was like. I wasn't here but I imagine that these dudes rocked. Whoever John B. and his buddy were who are creating fake games with a full-on play-by-play description, I am a spaz for fantasy sports. I love to consume the content. I love everything about it, but I'm not sure that I would actually create a fake play-by-play description for any fantasy head-to-head contest. Great respect to the forefathers of fantasy baseball. I had no idea the depth from which we came, But it's great to know that Burgesson and his bro were playing full-on play-by-play descriptions. I'm going to continue now. I'm just going to jump a paragraph or so. The first public open fantasy baseball game, 
Dugout Derby, was developed in 1989. A West Coast ad agency launched the game in 12 of the largest local newspapers across the country. Papers that offered Dugout Derby included the LA Times, Chicago Sun-Times, and NY Post. Archives of Dugout Derby are available in most public libraries. Wait, what? Archives of this 1980s newspaper version of fantasy baseball are actually available at my public library if I take the time to go yank some New York Post microfiche? Oh, boy. I wonder if that's a constructive use of time. Um, uh, back to the point. Dugout Derby allowed readers to create a team of major league players, earn stats for those players based on actual performance, trade those players on a daily basis, and accrue points in an effort to compete against one another to win prizes. Everything about that sentence sounds exactly like fantasy baseball today, except for trade those players on a daily basis. After I just read that we're doing this in a newspaper, how do you trade players on a daily basis in a newspaper? There's a uh, there's a citation on the Wikipedia. It's number four. I'm not going to click it right now. I'm going to allow that mystery to linger forever. How did the LA Times, Chicago Sun-Times, New York Post all create a method that they could trade players in their newspapers on a daily basis? I don't get trade offer responses today on the internet when I can text you, ping you with a thousand emails. I mean, trade laggers are one of the worst scourges of all fantasy sports. So you're telling me that today I can't get a, a trade response, but back in the day they would print it in the newspaper? I don't know about all this. Starting to sound just a bit far-fetched. Maybe exploring the history of fantasy baseball via Wikipedia was not a great idea. But since I'm pot committed now, I'm just going to scroll down to the next subject heading, which is Rotisserie League Baseball. The so-called Rotisserie scoring system was essentially established by the Chicago Baseball League, founded in 1978. The Chicago Baseball League also established the draft system to form individual teams. The rotisserie scoring system was developed independently and popularized in the 1980s by a group of journalists and formalized under the title Rotisserie League Baseball in 1980, named after the New York City restaurant La Rotisserie Frances, where its founders met for lunch and first played the game. Okay, so 1978. Uh, They call it the Chicago Baseball League, but they're playing in a New York City restaurant, and that's where the term rotisserie comes from. Fascinating. Magazine writer-editor Daniel Ockrent is credited with inventing the rotisserie scoring system, coming up with the idea on a flight to Texas. After presenting his first vision of rotisserie baseball to friends there, none seemed interested. Yeah, I bet. Uh, here comes old Danny Ockrent, drunk off his flight to DFW. Like, guys, I got a great new way to play fake sports. Like, Shut up, Dan. That was my dramatic reenactment of what might have happened. Because Ockrent was a member of the media, other journalists, especially sports writers, were introduced to the game. Many early players were introduced to the game by these sports journalists, especially during the 1981 Major League Baseball strike. With little else to write about, many baseball writers wrote columns about Rotisserie League, nicknamed Roto. It proved popular even in the 1980s when full statistics were often hard to come by. 
Stats used in early rotisserie leagues were often chosen because they were easy to compile from newspaper box scores. Doesn't matter much now because the whole newspaper industry is gone. Um, but that's actually covered here in the next paragraph. The advent of powerful computers and the internet revolutionized fantasy baseball, allowing scoring to be done entirely by computer and allowing leagues to develop their own scoring systems, often based on less popular statistics. In this way, fantasy baseball has become a sort of real-time simulation of baseball, and allows many fans to develop a more sophisticated understanding of how the real-world game works. According to statistics from a 2009 article in Forbes, nearly 11 million people play fantasy baseball today. Damn, that was some info, huh? We're all more well-rounded people now that we have sat through the history of fake baseball. But let's get on out of the classroom because drafting teams and talking about players is one of the best parts of all of fake sports. I've got somebody with a shared interest in that. His name is Eli. He's ready. I'm ready. No doubt you're ready. So let's do it. Elias Ridiculius Constantius. I think. The second bit. All right. Well, it's good to have my friend on the show. How are you this afternoon? I'm killing it, buddy. It's a typical Friday down here in San Diego, meaning that a uh, few people actually woke up and went to work this morning. So um, I had a good day. It's, you know, real sunny out. And yeah, just enjoying them. I'm glad we got this uh, got this time schedule because this is going to be fun. It will be fun. And um, what brought us together was a common interest and a common enjoyment of fantasy sports. Um, probably one of the largest industries in the world today is the billion trillion dollar concept of we can take statistics from professional sports and use them to compete against each other as fans myself uh, my brother and i began playing gosh probably in the mid 90s and uh, right as the internet was exploding i think it goes hand in hand with the explosion of the fantasy sports industry um, was the birth and growth of the internet my brother and i used to play on a site called sandbox and that's where i originally started playing fantasy sports and um, since then it has morphed over time to now where, um, uh, I play on Yahoo all the time. That's where I met you. How did you come mm -hmm. to be a Yahooligan commenter? Where did it start? Tell me a little bit about fantasy sports and how you kind of came into it. Sure. Um, I, I myself got into it. I think 2001 was the first year. Um, I had no idea what I was doing. I remember I just joined the public league for free on ESPN. And I, I remember this vividly because again, I had no idea what I was doing. I was filling up my queue and I, I was just going through position by position. And so I started with the pitchers and I threw in like a couple of pitchers that I really liked. One of which was Kurt Schilling. And then I also, you know, then I went to catchers and I was just going around the diamond. So I threw in a couple of catchers. Well, you know, it, Lo and behold, a few of the guys that I had up there that would be considered first-round picks uh, were gone by the time my draft position came up. And it, it just auto-selected because, again, I didn't know what I was doing. I want to stress that. And auto-selected Kurt Schilling for me, who at that time was probably – I mean, this was the year that he ended up actually doing really well with Randy. Yeah, 2001. Um, the Diamondbacks yeah. ended up winning the World Series. And between them, Johnson and Schilling um, – has set all different types of records, I'm sure. 
But the exactly. other thing that that memory brings for me is it was recently the anniversary of Randy Johnson exploding that bird in spring training. I saw that. Did you? I, yeah, I can watch. I, I, yeah, that was re- retweeted by everybody. I saw it. Uh, I, I can watch that a million times and not get bored of it. It is amazing that that ever happened. You're right. It has been retweeted a lot lately. And every time I watch it, I try and train my eye and try and find the main body, the fuselage, if you will, of the bird. Yeah. But every single time I'm tr- I try to tell myself, I'm like, focus on the find out where does the bird land and every single time i just stare at the explosion of feathers it's so even randy randy's been interviewed about that i saw that uh he actually not that he's like salty about it like super salty but he hates that that's like one of the first things people ask him or or remember about him because he had an amazing hall of fame career and everyone remembers him for hitting a bird with a baseball I'm not sure that it is awesome that he killed the bird, but I got to be honest, that's that's almost like a social brownie point thing where I feel obligated to defend the poor, helpless bird. But in truth, I don't give a <laughs> fuck about that flying rat. Whatever. He, he just, he, the legend of Johnson just continues to grow with those sort of things. I mean, that guy, that guy, I mean, dude, that time he let go of that ball, he was already halfway to home plate. Like he... We're not going to see somebody six foot ten and that good at playing baseball because they're just so lanky and awkward. No, um, it's it's, but... it's very rare to see him that tall. There's the uh, Chris Young, the pitcher for Kansas yep. City right now. I believe he's he's yep. got some height. Tyson Ross is, no, he's a, the same is height. pretty tall as a pretty tall dude as well. But um, he's six seven. We get we got a bunch of six seven guys. Um, I remember uh, Aaron Harang. I think I don't know if he's even trying to play baseball anymore. He's six seven. There's uh there's a few of them uh what's his name six six uh Chris Sale he's six foot six okay so yeah you know most most I mean for me I mean we're kind of getting off topic but for me the most uh I, I, the body that I like seeing pitchers is kind of like the Roger Clemens uh, Josh Beckett type of body like you know like a good like six four six five two thirty to two forty those guys seem to have long careers and they're very effective um, I get scared off with those little types like Marcus Stroman. Scares the hell out of me. I'm not sure he's going to be able to have a long career just like Tim Lincecum. Look what happened to him. He he burned out. Um, The only one that was successful. If you're going to burn out, then burn it out the way Tim Lincecum did, both with the bong and with the arm, that's perfect. I mean, he comes in, he's what, a three-time world champion. He's got a bunch of Cy Youngs. That guy knew how to have a good time and win games, so good for little Timmy. But to steer us back into the fantasy conversation, which (laughs) the best part about having a completely unscripted, unplanned show like we're doing is, and the conversation is going to meander, but as long as we both know what we're talking about and we're not talking on top of each other, I'm going to call it the greatest podcast ever. You and I both um, started as idiots in fantasy. And as you grow and you mature, one of the things that you do is you start to visit blogs and you start to read about the actual, the nuance and the strategy. And it's from there that um, I gravitated away from the ESPN, CBS and into the mm-hmm. Yahoo because there was just the, um, the staff of writers that they had always just appealed to me and the way that they explained the game and, and helped kind of expand the horizons of how you could set up a league with going from the snake draft into the auction draft was one of the things that that really elevated my interest in fake sports was the auction became such a pure way to acquire players and you and I both participated in an auction draft last night Um, talk a little bit about the difference between a traditional snake draft how you enjoy or don't enjoy that as compared to the auction oh I, I I agree with you 100% it is the far superior format 
Um, at first, it, it's not really necessarily for beginners. It's something that it, you kind of have to uh, do a couple of them before you really understand how to use your budget properly. What, what is standing out most or the major difference between a snake draft and an auction is you literally can get any player you want as long as you're willing to pay up for it. You can put aside uh, money for a specific guy. And, um, I remember you saying actually last night that you, you were bidding, I forget who it was, but you were bidding on somebody and you just kept going back and going back. Um, I think it was actually Michael Franco, but it went over what everyone else was willing to pay for. And you, you mentioned on the message board, you're like, that's the, that's the beauty of the auction. You, you can get who you want. Absolutely. And it is. It's unique. It's, that's what makes it the superior form. And a lot of times, um, speaking about auctions and strategies, my strategy as an auction drafter is I'm a focused drafter. There's guys, I come in and I want them and I'm going to pay whatever it is. To me, that's really the joy of the auction and you said it right away in describing the snake draft you take what comes to you as the picks go along you have pick six you have no chance at the first five it's you know it's very simplistic it doesn't require a lot of explanation whereas in the auction a player is nominated and you can bid as much as your budget can withstand so um most professional industry guys and the the shrewd players will always say take value you know what i mean shop for value take what the draft gives you I do not play an auction that way at all. I come in with guys that I want to buy. That's the nature of the auction for me is you can buy whoever you want. Well, I've done my research and here are the guys I want and God damn it, I'm going to pay whatever it costs and I'm just really hoping that nobody's trying to drive price on me. And Franco was a great example last night. A lot of people have him set at a, let's say arbitrarily 17, 18 bucks is what they're willing to pay Mm -hmm. for Franco. Um, I bought him last night for 20, but my budget for him on my spreadsheet that I use to, to map out who can I afford. And, you know, from there I focus in, I was like, all right, well, I'm setting aside as much as 23 for Franco because I want to be conservative mm-hmm. in my estimate. And if he comes in cheaper, which he did at 20, then I'll roll that $3 down to a TBD spot that I have someplace mm-hmm. else like a utility or a fifth outfielder. But I, I talk a bit about the way that you approach the auction because for me, as I've seen, it makes sense. If the concept is auction rules because I can buy whoever I want, then I'm going to focus on somebody. I'm not going to say, oh, I'll only pay up to 40 bucks on trout. I'll pay 65 if that's what it takes because the beauty of the auction mm-hmm. is I can get trout. So how did you approach the mm-hmm. auction with a strategy and how did it work out? Well, I'm glad you asked because I uh, like you. I like using spreadsheets. Um, I, I definitely have a broad uh, baseline of who I'm going on after. And yeah, I, I, I do have a threshold up for those players. And, and again, the beauty of this whole thing is uh, what I have is, is a top dollar for a player. You may be going after the same player and have a, a different top dollar. But in our collective minds, or our respective minds, we have uh, what we consider to be a profit. You never want to overpay for a player and, and not get the results that you're looking for from them. So um, that's that's part of the game, and that's what the game is, and that's what makes good fantasy owners from bad fantasy owners. And uh, my my strategy last night, and I'm looking at my sheet right now, I this is a two-catcher league, and I'm not a fan of two-catcher leagues at all. I uh, I don't like the position. I mean, it goes posy, and then it's a gigantic cliff. I'm not sure if you saw it or not, um, but that point did come up in the chat room. I was being a little facetious about you know two catcher is the worst fucking format ever. It's like I'm mm-hmm. trying to play fantasy 
baseball for fun. I, I give me the home runs, give me the stolen bases, mm-hmm. and it's like catchers suck. Why would you add more crap? Mm-hmm. Drag along the last fucking Molina brother. Oh yeah, <laughs> it's tough. It, it really is. A, it's a tough decision to make. I think you also said uh, uh, the all catcher league or something along those lines. Um, but yeah, it's it. it, it it's tough to get excited about a player whose primary responsibility is to control the pitching staff in the running game. They're not required to, to hit. It's a, it's a bonus if they do. Right. So um, one catcher is enough. But the fact that we needed two catchers in this league, and also to my surprise, um, I realized yesterday morning when I was starting to put things together, that we have 15 people in this league this year. That's yeah. a... That's much different. That's a very odd number. You and I both know it's usually 10, 12, or 14, and then things start getting a little more uh, you know, uh, customized after that. But 15 is a weird number for it to fall on, so it's hard to really gauge uh, the room. And, and it changes the value of your players because you're going to have to start getting some guys who are way down on your deep sleeper list uh, versus a league where it's 12 people. Um, so it looked like at different points in time that your strategy was perhaps to collect as many Red Sox as possible. And that's not a terrible <laughs> strategy, not only from a fan perspective, but from a, a team that might score a lot of runs. I yeah. want to jump back to the point that the, there are 15 owners in the league and they're all highly skilled. And I think that's why we saw the, the prices were enforced. There were there was no free lunch in that draft. It's a, yeah. it's a great collection of, of skilled people. But with 15 owners nominating in the auction the other thing that last night did for me is really crystallize how badly i'm jerking myself off when i think that you can have a nomination strategy talk about throwing a pebble in the ocean when you go once every 15 times you're putting a player forward it's not like you i walked into the room last night thinking you know what i'm gonna be the guy who kills america's sleeper i'm gonna nominate conforto right away i'm Mm -hmm. gonna nominate you know will myers right away i'm gonna nominate vince velasquez of the of the phillies right away and uh i got two nominations into that plan and realized what an utter nothing it was it was such a zero so um the only nomination strategy that i think that makes sense is every time it's your turn toss a guy that costs a lot of money that you don't want and um that's not breaking any new ground anyone who's ever auctioned has has used that strategy you know it it makes sense at the easiest mathematical level if everyone has a budget the more money you take out of the room then the better off you are to be able to strong on somebody for a player later. But um, let there be no doubt left in my mind. There is no radical nomination strategy when there's 15 people in a league and there really isn't a a strategic nomination pattern when there's 12 people in the league either. Yeah, I agree with that. That's usually what I do. I'll throw up some guys that that you definitely know will go for a lot of money and there'll be a little bit of, uh, you know, it's an option. There'll be people who are throwing money at a guy and like we said, it's just starting to kill their bankroll while you're, you're secretly planning to take over the world. All right, final question time then. Let's bring it home. I got it for you right here. I need to know what, how you decided on Franconia Notch. Oh, uh, it's in New Hampshire. It's where the old man of the mountains was. So uh, growing up in Boston, I had taken a couple of trips to New Hampshire. And one of the places that we went was uh, Lake Winnipesaukee. 
and then Franconian Notch and uh, Mount Washington, the windiest place on earth, I think is what they brought. There was some t-shirt. It was like 214 mile an hour winds here at the top of Mount Washington. And on a clear day with binoculars, you can see the Hancock Tower in Boston, which uh, the times that I visited Mount Washington, I could not see the Hancock Tower. So I'm not sure if that's just urban legend or if that's true. But that's bullshit. Is it bullshit? It seems like it. But the oh, tragedy of the bullshit. whole thing is that Old Man of the Mountains was a rock structure that kind of jutted out over a, a highway and you could pull off to the side. And if you looked up, it looked like a man's profile face on the side of the mountain. But gravity is a motherfucker and the old man's face fell down. And there is no more Old Man in the Mountains. So if you've never seen that before then you will not see it in the future except for on photos. So having seen it, for whatever reason, going through my mind before the draft, I was like, oh, dude, you finished really poorly in this league last year. So the tie-in in my mind was you were this once iconic structure, this this unbeatable force. I've had some good success in fantasy. And you've collapsed <laughs> off the mountain. You've got to put it back together. So I named it Franconia Notch, and for the little avatar thing, I used a picture of the old man in the mountain. A great explanation. I didn't think it would be that uh, intense, but it, it, it's actually better than I thought it would be. Uh-huh. So, you know, I'm from New Hampshire. Um, I've been to Franconia Notch a hundred times, and you are right. It's quite a magnificent thing. A lot of people don't realize it was actually it wasn't man-made. That's just how it was. Correct. And yeah. they went up there and they, they just like fine-tuned the surface, like you know, made it just like the cheekbones. They made it more like enhanced and, and whatever. They also put a uh, sensing around the face to try and keep it up there and preserve it for longer but eventually like you said mother nature just slaps that thing off and it sucks because it was beautiful and it is bullshit you cannot see boston from there it's way too far um <laughs> but i'm glad i'm glad you did because I, I mean i knew what that is and it's cool when you see like you know I, I don't know about you but i look at names and i try to figure out how people come up with those names and like, you know, if I didn't know you, then obviously I would have sent you an email being like, dude, are you from New England? Anyway, so I noticed that and I thought it was cool. I thought I'd ask. Do you know what my name means? Hold on. I'm clicking now because I want to I want to see what it actually says. Oh, Captain America Arius. Um, so here I have no idea what it means. Uh, Captain. The first thing that comes to my mind is Captain Crunch because it's got the abbreviation. Anyway. Captain Americo, so that just reminds me of a way that you can make coffee, like an espresso, an Americano. And then Arius, the first thing I thought of was Tom Araya of Slayer. So that's where I come out. Captain Crunch with an Americano espresso being drank by Tom Araya. So much involved. Yeah, I wish that I actually had that as my explanation, but it's not. All right, well, go ahead and disappoint me. What's the real explanation? A lot of people don't realize, I was hoping you were going to know it because I know you're from from New England, but um, a lot of people don't realize David Ortiz's last name is not Ortiz. Oh, right. His real real name is David Amirico Ortiz Arrivius. Put the two names in there that people don't realize. So his middle name's Amirico. And then obviously it's, it's a tribute to him. He's on my team. And this is, you know, farewell season. I was trying to pay homage in some way. And he is the captain. So it sounds like Captain America. I thought that was cool. And then his last name is Arius. So Captain America, Arius. That does make sense. I have seen him in interviews before rattle off his whole name. And uh, he's got a kid who I believe is a junior or perhaps a third or something in various YouTubes or whatever I've seen of 
or DVDs of the World Series wins. When you got three World Series wins, you get those DVDs. You get the behind the scenes. No yep. one's going behind the scenes of the 2014 Pittsburgh Pirates. It's just you're never going to get that DVD, nope. I don't think. But <laughs> thankfully, the Red Sox snapped off three World Series. So I know that Manny Ramirez is into cars. And I know that um, Orlando Cabrera had really cool handshakes and high fives that he created with everyone. Those are the types of things that you see. And it's kind of neat. Those are the, the tiny little nuggets as a fan that I take with me. All right. I'm going to wind down and say thanks very much to anyone who took the time to listen. For my friend Eli, I am Tom. And we'll see you.